I knew that each script I wrote, I would get better and better. Uh -huh. So I just, I was writing scripts. And then um, I was having dinner, I moved to LA, and a few months in, I had dinner with a buddy from growing up. Mm -hmm. And he was in a business, he was um, just like me, trying to make his way as a writer. And he happened to know an agent who was at the next table. Mm -hmm. And the agent oh. walked over to say hello to him. And my buddy Alex said, uh, you should meet my friend Aaron. He just moved here. He's a great writer. He's got great scripts. And the agent said, send me your stuff. Hey guys, welcome back to Screenwriter Survival Guide. Today on the show, I'm chatting with Aaron Tracy, who is a writer on Law & Order SVU and the creator of the Crackle series, Sequestered. His newest audio drama, 10 Days, is now available exclusively on Audible+. Plus. Aaron, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. Um, I'd like to start off with your journey as a filmmaker. So what drew you to this business and how did you go about actualizing your career aspiration? Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I would call myself a filmmaker, um, but uh, I've always loved writing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, and, and I've loved TV and, yep. and features. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I grew up on the East Coast where it's kind of, I mean, especially when I grew up, like, there was no roadmap to yeah. how that can work. Um, right. So after graduation, I just moved to LA, uh, mm. which is probably, I mean, looking back, definitely the bravest thing I've ever done. <laughs> like, truly nuts proposition just to move yeah. out there with no contacts, no job, no nothing. Yeah. But I also kind of knew that it was the epicenter and it was where you had to be to give it a shot. Right. And whatever, when you're in your mid twenties, who cares, right? Fair enough. Um, and then I got, uh, I guess I should say, one thing that gave me a little bit of confidence was I wrote a spec episode of the West Wing mm -hmm. and I entered into a contest, uh, you know, one of those silly contests that you see online mm -hmm. and it won first place. And that made me feel confident and right. I showed it to a few people and they all liked it and that made me feel confident. And so I think all of that together, plus my passion for it made me take the leap and move out mm. to LA. Um, and then, yeah, and then, you know, I just kind of got lucky. I got a writer's assistant job on an existing TV show, which was fantastic because you get to learn how a show is made. Mm -hmm. um, the show was terrible, but uh, <laughs> who cares, right? I mean, I right. saw what Doesn't a writer's matter. room is. Yeah. yeah, I saw what production is. I met a bunch of great writers. I met the executive producer who took me on to his next show. Okay. Um, the first show lasted nine episodes and got canceled. The second show lasted three episodes. Oh, wow. <laughs> very typical, very typical. But, yeah. um, you know, it was great, great, great learning experience for mm -hmm. me. And yeah. Um, and yeah, so, so like a lot of other people, then you just kind of work your way up. You, you write yeah. scripts, you show them to people, you get more jobs, more assistant jobs. And eventually um, I just started selling my own pilots and getting mm -hmm. stuff made. And um, yeah, that's yeah. kind of where I am now. So did you always know it was TV for you? So it sounds like you had that West Wing spec and that was kind of your first thing. So was that, you, you knew from the beginning, I'm TV? Because you said you're interested in features as well, but most of your stuff is in TV. Yeah, I think I probably, I knew very, very little about the industry, but mm -hmm. I knew enough to know that being a screenwriter is not a thing. Like mm -hmm. there's so, so, so few people who yeah. make their living as a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. um, I've got, you know, dozens and dozens of friends at this point who, who make their you know, living as a dramatic writer, mm -hmm. not a single one of them does it as a screenwriter. Right. It's just, there, there are not jobs. That's yeah. just not something that exists. There are yeah. fewer movies being made, fewer studios, obviously, same people being used. So TV is where there are lots and lots yeah. of jobs. 
So I knew yeah. enough to go there. And I did, I grew up with TV. I love TV. Um, and when I was coming up, it was like, you know, the, the third golden age of television. <laughs> so there was just so much great stuff. And right. no question, better stuff is, I mean, to say the obvious, better stuff is yeah. on TV than, than features right now. Most definitely. I also, someone told me this uh, when I like, you know, pick someone's brain for coffee a while back and they said uh write tv also because it's shorter you can get more specs done and so you can grow more as a writer um, especially when you're first starting out if you write uh pilots you're writing a lot more of them than you write a feature because it'll take you know six months to write a feature where it won't call take that to write a pilot um so i know you started as an assistant um so how did you go about getting that first job um it was one of those things it was it was lucky. Um, well, I should say it was lucky, but also sort of being prepared. Um, so I wrote a few spec scripts for myself that I, you know, kept in a drawer. And I, I mean, I, tr- I shouldn't say I kept in a drawer. I tried to show to people. I didn't have many contacts right. to show them to. But um, I knew that each script I wrote, I would get better and better. Uh-huh. So I just, I was writing scripts. And then um, I was having dinner. I moved to LA uh-huh. and a few months in, I had dinner with a buddy from growing up mm-hmm. and he was in the business he was um just like me trying to make his way as a writer and he happened to know an agent who was at the next table mm-hmm. and the agent oh. walked over to say hello to him and my buddy alex said uh you should meet my friend aaron he mm-hmm. just moved here he's a great writer he's got great scripts and the agent said send me your stuff huh. so i sent him my stuff and um, that West Wing spec, I think, hmm. especially impressed him. And he took me on as a hip pocket client, hmm. which is um, which is when an agent takes you on. Um, you're not a full client of the agency, mm-hmm. but if he can get you work, he will. And if he can't, no skin off his nose, you know. Right. And so it was at CAA, and they have obviously a lot of great contacts, and they were able to get me um, in for a writer's assistant hmm. uh, interview. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so it's like, yeah, yeah. Well, so I, I didn't realize say, those... it's a matter no, of, <laughs> no, sorry. I was just going to say it's a matter of like being in LA where uh-huh. it just, Hollywood is in the water supply, you know, it's just everywhere. Right. And there are obviously some other places in, you know, New York, especially where that's true. And now with everything being online, I don't mm-hmm. think it's as important as it used to be, right. but it was a matter of being around the right people and having some scripts that I was proud of and mm-hmm. that I was okay showing to people. Right. So when did you, when did you move out of LA? So is it, do you think it's more important to be there when you're first starting out and then it's less important? Or do you think it's important to be there, you know, for your you know, entire career? No, the former, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important. I mean, again, like the world is different now with, right. with COVID. Now everything's online. So I really do think you can do this career mm-hmm. from almost anywhere at this point. But yes, I before COVID, I certainly encouraged people to move out to LA for a few years like mm-hmm. I did, which is where... I got my manager and I got my agents and my lawyer and a mm-hmm. writing partner and a bunch of executive producers that I was friendly with. And obviously mm-hmm. those first two jobs. And it's just, it's so much easier in LA, but I'm just not an LA person. I mm-hmm. love New York. My family's on the East coast. I grew up on the East coast it's where I'm comfortable. And so I decided to move back uh, like a decade ago. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I got lucky. I was, I was writing for law and order, which is written here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that helped me, you know, make the move. But I've honestly, I've been much more successful in New York than I ever hmm. was in LA. Part of that, obviously, is just having more of a foothold in the industry, right. being around longer, probably hopefully getting better at the craft. But also, I'm happier here. Yeah. Like, in LA, um, Tony Gilroy has a great uh, quote. He talks about, I, I won't try to quote him, but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to summarize. He says when he's in LA, 
he feels very ordinary. Like he'll go to a coffee shop and every single person will have their laptop. <laughs> open. They'll all be screenwriters writing their masterpiece, mm-hmm. right? In New York, he feels special mm-hmm. because his friends are journalists and lawyers and mm-hmm. they're not all screenwriters. And you kind of need to feel special to mm-hmm. be a screenwriter. This is such a crazy business, yeah. such a difficult business. You kind of do need that that feeling of specialness. And That's so, <laughs> um, yeah, for me, I could get that in New York. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I'm I'm going through a very similar thing where I've been out here for like three years now. And I, I don't have a manager or anything like that. But I'm starting to think like just my happiness is not as like I because I went back and forth a lot during COVID, you know, during the first couple years because my family's also in the, where? Uh, New Hampshire. So my family's also on the East Coast. Um, and so I spend a lot of time there and I'm just I'm so much happier there. Um, yeah. it's so, it's so isolating being here and you're spending a lot more time with other industry people, but there's right. also, it's just like, it's harder to make real honest connections, right. I think here. And so, yeah, oh, I'm right. going through a very similar type of thing. So it's kind of a, a very je- uh, jealous, um, personal selfish question I'm asking, uh, how you did it. No, it's an important one. <laughs> and people, you know, I teach also, and students ask me that question mm-hmm. all the time. Um, I do think it's really important to be where mm-hmm. you're happy because you're not going to be writing good stuff right. if you're miserable. You're just not. Yeah. yeah, no, it's definitely, I have noticed that, you know, in the times when, you know, COVID starts to spike up and I start staying in my apartment more and my work keeps shutting down more, um, my writing is worse. And then when I'm yeah. out more and I actually have less time to write, but I'm speaking more with, uh, with other people and I'm, I'm hanging out and I'm going outside more, my writing gets better, even regardless of, you know, how much time I have to write it. Totally. And it's not just that. It's not, you know, if you're, if you're on assignment, okay, mm-hmm. then maybe you can write from wherever you are, no matter what your state of mind is. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's an exaggeration, but you know, a lot of us can just get the pages done if we need mm-hmm. to. In this business, we're often not an assignment. Mm-hmm. We're having to come up with our own stuff, generate our own material. And that's really hard if you're in like a, a pessimistic, cynical, dark mm-hmm. mindset. I really think it's important to be in a much more positive mindset in order to see connections. Like all of a sudden, if you're if you're happy and you're positive and you're excited, then you think um, you're all of a sudden seeing connections like, oh, OK, well, Shonda Rhimes, you know, I know I heard from a friend that she's looking for this kind of material. Mm-hmm. And I worked with this non-writing executive producer last year who liked a similar kind of material. So maybe mm-hmm. I should write this pitch, take it to that non-writing EP who can then take it to Shonda. Like mm-hmm. you'll see connections where you wouldn't right. have if you were in a dark mindset and that yeah. kind of thing is so important when you're, when you're generating your own ideas. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So this kind of transitions into my next, my next topic. So you had your first assistant job, I believe in 2005, correct? Sounds right. Yeah. And then yeah, like, when I first moved to LA. gotcha. And then according to IMDB, anyway, your first like credited episode was in 2011. So yeah. there's a lot of waiting in this business. So do you yeah. have any tips for, what to do during those periods, how to, obviously you're still writing, but how to kind of maintain a positive mindset, how to kind of um, stay kind of uh, aligned with your goals during those times when, you know, the phone's not ringing as much. Sure. I mean, I think it's important. Um, it's, this is much easier said than done, but you have to enjoy the process of getting there. Mm-hmm. If you are completely miserable, you know, I, like I said, I had some assistant jobs and the assistant jobs were great. I mean, in, in some sense, it was because I was lucky with the group of people that I was with for both jobs. They were just cool mm-hmm. people and I enjoyed spending time with them. And everything felt new and exciting to me because I was so passionate about the industry. Um, but obviously, you hear from a lot of people who have different kinds of jobs. They're working in the mailroom at you know an agency or, or they're working for a horrible boss. Mm-hmm. If you're miserable, that 
period is going to go by so slowly, (laughs) so miserably. You have to find a way to enjoy the journey. Um, And if that means quitting your miserable job and going and finding uh, another assistant job that maybe is a little bit more, you know, you're doing mundane tasks or there's not as obvious a road to promotion, but you're going to be happier every day because the people are better. It's, I highly recommend doing that. Um, You just have to be, yeah, you have to stop yourself from getting into a position where you dread every day and you're just looking forward to the moment when you're on staff Mm -hmm. or, you know, you sell your first script, because if you're entirely um, results oriented, Mm -hmm. you're just going to be suffering. Yeah. I forget her name, but the director of the farewell Lulu something, I believe she, I was just listening to a podcast with her and she was talking about how for her, when she was like not getting work between her first feature and her second, the important thing, the thing that she did that was so successful was um, actually like not taking work in the business, taking work outside the business and, yeah. and using the business kind of like we were saying, Tony Gilroy was saying about, yeah. um, about uh, trying to be special, like finding, yeah. like surrounding herself with people who weren't in the business and making the business kind of on the side, which I think is a very interesting approach. I think that's really smart. Um, a lot of writers who just move from college or grad school right to Los Angeles and get an assistant job and then work th- try to work their way up, um, they're just not as attractive to showrunners as people mm-hmm. who have had outside life experience. Right. Um, if you are a lawyer, you are bringing in a whole different skill set and a mm-hmm. whole different point of view. If you have had another job, another life, um, if you can bring something to the table besides people who have just been in the industry as assistants, mm-hmm. it's incredibly valuable. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I highly recommend doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've sold pilots to tons of studios from Crackle to CBS, MGM, Lionsgate. Could you walk us through your experience pitching and selling those projects? Um, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it never, it never changes. It's, it's kind <laughs> of always the same and it probably always will be, which is that you spend a ton of time putting together a pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably spend as much time putting together a pitch as I do writing a spec. Mm-hmm. Um, when you put that pitch together, you then need to come up with attachments. So you often will be looking for a director or an actor, um, certainly a production company or a non-writing executive producer, oftentimes a studio. You know, it's getting harder and harder. It will always change. But like right now, um, I'm pitching two things right now. One of which is a full script um, mm-hmm. that was commissioned by a studio. And that script has obviously a studio attached. It also has a great director attached. It has a great actor attached in the lead role. Um, it has a great non-writing executive producer. And um, we are still not going out with the project to buyers until Mm -hmm. we get a lead actress attached director actor not writing ep studio script and we're still trying to attach an actress so and is it based on ip that project or is it original okay it's original yeah which 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 good point that That makes it harming it yeah gotcha i don't know if it's harming it but yeah i mean an original idea is the hardest thing in the world right Mm -hmm. so it's it's unproven so, um, so yeah, so that requires a lot of attachments and mm-hmm. we could be wrong. Maybe if we just went right to buyers with the script, we would be able to get a good reaction, mm-hmm. but you know, our, our partners, our studio partners, our producers, they don't think so. They think we need yeah. all of these attachments. And then the other project I'm going out with, there's no script. It's just a pitch. Mm-hmm. And we have a big actor attached in the lead role and we have a big TV director attached mm-hmm. to direct it. Um, and 
we're 0 for 5 right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm in the middle of pitching it right now, and we're yeah. 0 for 5. Now we still have four pitches left. Yeah. But like that feeling of having a killer package, a killer idea, going out to try to sell it, it never gets easier. Yeah. Honestly, I, I shouldn't say that. It does get easier, but there will always be giant, giant setbacks and feelings of doubt and failure and lack of self-worth. And yeah, it's it's yeah. a really hard business. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really easy. We throw around a lot of huge numbers in this business. And like, I've only gone out with one pilot and it was like, I unwrapped screenwriter, my director and producers were unwrapped tiny production company and we were needed like $50 million to do it. So surprisingly we got no buyers, but um, uh, we, we throw around huge numbers like that, like, like tens of millions of dollars. And you don't think about the fact that like, that's like several startups. <laughs> that's like the <laughs> money that it would cost to fund like several startups in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And yeah. it, it, really we, we wonder why these things don't go more and it makes sense when you really think about it like that like oh you need a hundred million dollars for that movie well that's like i could fund like 10 startups for that and they would totally. probably have return on investment way more than this film yeah it's tricky right um you're right to to be smart to think about the financials um i made a pilot a few years ago for usa network and um you know it was one of those went and pitched it uh they bought it in the room uh commissioned a script Script went well, they ordered it to pilot. We went and spent um, close to $10 million in the pilot, mm -hmm. right? Mm. Um, extraordinary expense, extraordinarily expensive uh, for the time, especially. And um, they didn't pick it up to series. So it's just mm -hmm. the pilot. So I have a $10 million dollar DVD yeah. sitting in my dresser. Oof. People say, I can't believe that. Like they put $10 million into it and they're not gonna make it into a series. How, right. What kind of thinking is that? And on the one hand, that is truly insane, right? They literally flushed all the money down the toilet. But on the other hand, a pilot costs 10 million. Mm -hmm. To make an entire first season would cost what? 150 million? Right. <laughs> uh, so there is a cost-benefit analysis that yeah. we're going through. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's important to think about, especially when... Yeah you know, you hit some obstacles. Yeah. The more I like learn about the, the, the business side, the, the, the financial side of this business, the more I think it's, it's a really bad business. Like it's great for creatives, but it's not, a, it doesn't seem like a great proposition for like, I, yeah. I, it makes sense now why more studios aren't created more often because it's just not a great proposition for like investors yeah. and stuff. Yeah. I, I haven't pitched to broadcast networks in a while, but um, when I used to do that, I remember hearing about the numbers, which are that, you know, um, broadcast networks, meaning ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, they buy all of their pilots in the summertime, at least they mm -hmm. used to. Mm -hmm. And the network executives, because you know there's such a short window of when they're hearing pitches, they're hearing um, you know pitches all day, every day. Mm -hmm. And so over the course of the summer, they're going to hear something like 350 pitches, mm. right? 350 pitches of those 350, they're probably going to buy. 50 projects. Mm -hmm. So each of those, depending on sort of um, what stage of their career the writer is in, in other words, how much money that mm -hmm. they command to write a pilot script, um, they're going to be spending a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the guild minimum to write a pilot is something like a drama pilot is something like 60 grand. Mm -hmm. But if you're Aaron Sorkin, you're making right. something like a million dollars. So they buy 50 of them. They're then going to make maybe 10 to 12 mm -hmm. Of those 10 to 12, they're going to put on the fall schedule, maybe three. So you go from 350 pitches that they hear 
to three new shows in the fall. Yeah. So it is, as you said, it's great for writers because yeah. you can make a fantastic living in this business mm-hmm. without really getting stuff made. Yeah. Um, which is which is shocking to a lot of people. Right. But really, people there there are writers out there who are making a fortune and really not. Don't you know, they have a very small IMDb page. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's good for writers, you know, and that we keep getting paid. But yes, it seems absolutely crazy yeah. from a <laughs> you know financial model. Yeah, that's wild. So let's talk about your pilot that did go um, to series. So uh, sequestered. Um, so mm-hmm. once you sold your show and then recovered from the subsequent crazy night out, um, what does it actually look like making that pilot? And then, um, yeah, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, that was that was fun. Um, it was for Sony's Crackle. And mm-hmm. so they were sort of a very fledgling network at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a bit of a mess. Um, <laughs> everybody trying to figure out like, who's in charge? Mm-hmm. How much money do we have? It all went incredibly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not have a great production entity on the show, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, shot it in LA um, over a brief period of time lots of changes in leadership Mm. it was a bit of a mess um i'm proud of (laughs) at least the first episode yeah um but you know one of those experiences that was not what you hoped for not what i hoped for not a fantastic experience now my next pilot the tap Mm -hmm. the one i made for usa network Mm -hmm. so that was a bit of the opposite in that it was a fantastic experience i Mm -hmm. absolutely loved every moment of it but that one didn't end up going to series right yeah Gotcha. Um, but the tap was great. And you know, it all comes down to who the people are. So with the tap, uh, our non-reigning executive producer was Rob Reiner. And mm-hmm. Rob is one of my all-time heroes. You know, he directed When Harry Met Sally and yeah. Stand By Me and A Few right. Good Men and The American yeah. President. Just an absolute hero. And so getting to have a lunch with him every day and getting to just hear his wisdom and hear mm-hmm. his notes. And I got to work, uh, my partner Andrew and I got to work out of Castle Rock, which mm-hmm. is of course his production entity. Um, and so just like having meetings with Rob or just walking from my office to the bathroom and just passing by Rob <laughs> and just seeing him in there, just like a legend who I'm such a fan mm-hmm. of doing casting with him, just watching yeah. how he works with actors during casting, how after every actor, you know, is so vulnerable in the casting room, giving their, their reading, he gets up and he shakes their hand. Mm-hmm. Like just such a good guy. I learned so much on that show. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course it was devastating when it didn't get picked up to series, but right. still overall a great, great experience. experience. I'm a better writer for it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I sometimes run into this when writing pilots and I'm sure it's, you know, even more uh, pronounced when you're, you know, actually producing a pilot and trying to get it to go to series, um, trying to like think about a, a runway for, for the series versus getting as much interesting, exciting stuff happening in the pilot as possible mm. um, to entice, you know, a studio to, to pick it up or to entice focus groups right. to like it. So they want to, you know, get the next episode. How do you balance that when you're, you know, produ- when you're developing a, pi- a pilot after it's sold or when you're actually in production on a pilot, like the immediacy of like needing to get this pilot picked up versus like we need to set up a series? Yeah, you put everything into the pilot. Yeah. Every good idea you have, everything you can think of should be in the pilot because mm-hmm. if it's not the greatest thing in the right. world, <laughs> you're not going to get a yeah. full season. Um, I can't remember who it was. It was Steve Zalian or some screenwriter like that was talking about how um, he was doing his first pilot and he had the whole season mapped out and he had all mm-hmm. these great twists and turns down the line. And of course the pilot didn't get picked up and his, his takeaway was right. 
I was saving too much. Right? Right. I had all these great ideas. I should have put them in the pilot. Mm-hmm. And then guess what? After the pilot stage, you get to hire a room full of writers. Right. You'll come up with other interesting yeah. twists and turns. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you want to put every good idea you yeah. have basically into the pilot. Yeah. So can you talk about that, about hiring a writer's room and what kind of how your writing changes then after after you have the pilot and you have to think about the rest of the series? Yeah, and so the majority of the writers' rooms that I've run have been in audio drama, uh-huh. uh, like for ten days. Uh-huh. You know, they're they're just the collective mind of four to eight really good writers uh-huh. is just it's it's exponentially better than uh-huh. it would be. You know, just adding up those right. four to eight writers' ideas. Um, there's something about, especially when a room is run well, and I've been in bad rooms and I've been in good rooms and usually it comes down to the showrunner and the way he or she runs the room. Um, but when you're in a good room, meaning people feel free to pitch ideas, feel, people feel free to be vulnerable, to talk about their own experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just, you're coming up with stuff for the characters that, mm. you know, no, no two people in the room would have been able to come up with on their own usually. Right. Um, so there's just, there, there's nothing like it. Now mm. I'm, um, I have far, far less experience in writers' rooms than a lot of my friends mm-hmm. who have been on staff, you know, year after year after year after year. Um, I've been much more in the development camp, mm-hmm. so yeah, I definitely don't have as much experience with that. But the the ones that I've been in, um, when they're run well, are fantastic, and mm-hmm. when they're run poorly, uh, and that's often because the showrunner is feeling a ton of anxiety and pressure from the studio mm-hmm. network, and so he take he or she takes that out on the writers, and mm-hmm. people don't feel free to mm-hmm. pitch ideas um, and you know you kind of feel like you're trapped in the room because these rooms mm-hmm. are like windowless rooms right. you're in there for like eight to 12 hours a yeah. day. Um, it can be a really difficult experience and yeah. the work will not be good. Sounds like it could be heaven or hell that like depending on the people in the room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it really can be. You know, and more and more, the trend is obviously very small writers' rooms mm-hmm. with just like two to four to six people. Yeah, um, and I think that can be great too, depending on the dynamics. Mm-hmm. You know, an important thing when you're, you know, building a writers' room is who's going to get along with who. Make sure you have a real diversity of voices, mm-hmm. so everybody just doesn't just sound the same and have the same mm-hmm. background, the same experiences. Right. Um, that kind of stuff is incredibly crucial. Mm-hmm. So how do you think the kind of the shrinking of writer's rooms, maybe you don't have an opinion on this, but how do you think the shrinking of writer's rooms affects how like people who are just starting out should be thinking about uh, moving up in the business? Like, do you think, cause there's just, there's more shows, but less jobs per show. Do you think that's, that still seems like it evens out to there's more jobs overall if there's like 500 shows on the air, but how do you think, do you think that that should change uh, an up and coming writer's um, kind of uh, trajectory if they're thinking about trying to get like a staff job on a show, but now there's less staff jobs available on shows? No, I don't think it should. Um, there are definitely more jobs than there were 10 mm-hmm. years ago. Um, the problem, of course, is that while, yes, there are way more shows than there ever have been before, those short those shows often have much shorter orders. Mm-hmm. So they only take up three months or six months of the mm-hmm. year instead of being year round as they used to be. So a writer now needs to have, you know, maybe two or three shows per year that they're working on, which is obviously very difficult. But no, an up and coming writer who wants to go the staff route, and obviously there's sort of two different routes, although obviously they blend into each other, Mm -hmm. which is the staffing route and the development route. Mm -hmm. If you're going the staffing route, then you just want to get on a show, do your thing, impress the bosses, and then get onto the next show afterwards and keep Mm -hmm. working your way up. If you're the development route, 
then you're coming up with ideas, you're putting attachments, you know, to those ideas, you're pitching shows, you're writing pilots, you're hoping to get them made. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go back and forth, of course, between those two worlds, uh, but those are sort of the two parallel worlds. No, I mean, you just got to figure out what's for you. If you are someone who enjoys writing with other people, you want to be on staff, you want to be in writer's rooms. Um, no, that's what you should go for. Don't worry about the fact that there are fewer, um, mm-hmm. oper- you know, there are fewer um, shows have shorter orders than they mm-hmm. used to be. Um, than they used to have. You can't worry about that. You mm-hmm. just gotta, you know, right. play the hand that you're dealt. So what what uh, what was the thinking behind your choice to kind of go more in the development route? Is that just a just a you prefer kind of solo work more yourself? I, I think I probably am someone. I definitely am someone who enjoys mm-hmm. um, just being in a room writing mm-hmm. more than being in a a writer's room for sure. And it's also just circumstance, right? Like mm-hmm. I got lucky. I sold a pilot early right. on to ABC Family. And I loved it. You know, again, the pilot didn't end up getting picked up, mm-hmm. but like we were talking about before, you know, you can get paid really well uh, without, you know, getting a show made. And so I mm-hmm. realized if I can keep doing this, if I can keep coming up with my own ideas that I'm passionate mm-hmm. about and putting attachments uh, to them and then selling them and, mm-hmm. you know, eventually, hopefully one will go, but until that happens, I'm really enjoying the development process. Right. Um, and so that's what, it's just, it's more my personality. It's more what I really like. Yeah. So let's pivot now to your work in audio dramas. So how did you uh, originally get into that, into that world? Cause it's kind of a new, very exciting world right now. Totally. I'm yeah. so excited about it. Um, I first got into it. Um, you know, one of those things I had, uh, my agent sent me on a general meeting with mm-hmm. the, the guy who runs James Patterson's company, his mm-hmm. um, book to film and TV company. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a great meeting and, uh, I forget how it came up, but we both sort of started talking about this new thing of scripted podcasts. Mm. Um, and eventually hooked up with my buddy, Ryan, who I went to college with, who had a relationship with audible, which Mm. was one of the bigger, you know, scripted audio drama companies. And, um, we all took a project together to audible Mm. and it was basically an adaptation well, you know, it wasn't quite an adaptation. It was more complicated than that. It was a prequel to one of Patterson's favorite books that he wrote. Okay. Uh, so we would be telling a story using his characters, mm-hmm. but that takes place five years before the events mm-hmm. in his book. Mm-hmm. And Audible was into it. And yeah. I absolutely love the process. Mm-hmm. It's just writing dialogue. You know, <laughs> or I shouldn't say it's just writing dialogue. It's much more dialogue than yeah. TV or film, right? It's still structure. It's still king. You're still mm-hmm. an architect. Uh, as a screenwriter, uh, much more than an artist, I truly believe. But um, it is much more of an opportunity to write dialogue because that's all there is, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I love the process and the show turned out to be a big hit, which was incredibly sort of satisfying and fulfilling. And so I just went deep into them and Mm -hmm. I've got a bunch of audio dramas lined up now. Um, I do writer's rooms for them. I treat them like TV shows for the most Mm -hmm. part, obviously you know, thinking about the key differences creatively between audio and, and TV, mm-hmm. but, you know, in terms of um, hiring writers rooms and, and coming up with outlines and story areas and so forth, um, that I treat, you know, just as if I was writing TV, mm-hmm. but I just find it incredibly fun. So I know a lot of people talk. So when I went, when I went to pitch my show and we couldn't get any buyers, I spoke with one executive who said, you know, we're really looking for a lot of stuff that's based on IP. And he was suggesting um, doing it as a podcast. We're actually working on that right now. We're developing that now. So do you 
consider is that something you're considering like are, are you looking at your projects like 10 days or like the coldest case and saying are, are, are we gonna try to adapt this into a series down the line or are you mostly just trying to be like this is just an audio drama that's what it is and we're moving on we're not going to think about it again a little bit of both um you know I, all my friends in in tv right now are looking to podcast to generate ip just mm-hmm. because it's it's the new thing right now mm-hmm. <clears throat> a few years ago it was adapting comic books and graphic mm-hmm. novels and now it's it's podcasts so i definitely uh am going to take a shot mm-hmm. with most of my podcasts in the transition to tv coldest case i think will just exist on its own mm-hmm. um as a audio drama but 10 days very much want to take out to tv mm-hmm. i have a great producer attached we just got another great production company attached we're going to go try to find a great director mm-hmm. and then uh, take it to TV and see mm-hmm. what happens. But the truth is, I really will be totally fine if they just mm-hmm. if they don't sell to TV or they don't get made as TV shows. If they just exist as audio dramas, mm-hmm. because I'm a huge fan of the medium. I'm a huge podcast junkie, and so just having them as an end in themselves, fantastic. Um, you know, with ten days especially, uh, I I feel. Um, I feel an ownership of it that I've mm-hmm. never felt with a TV project before huh. because in TV, there's so many gatekeepers. There's so many layers. Mm-hmm. Your show goes through so, so, so many rewrites and compromises and, you know, so forth yeah. with 10 days. And, and that's not to say that's a bad thing. Like if you're working with good people, a lot of times it'll make the show better and it'll be right. a more pleasurable experience because you're, you're in it with teammates, right? Mm-hmm. With 10 days, you know, I will never again have a project where I'm the creator, writer, director, producer, and actor, mm-hmm. right? That will never happen again, nor right. should it, okay? Yeah. Um, but there's something that's very satisfying mm-hmm. about that with 10 days. Like, it started off, I had a vision for it, and that vision was fulfilled. And that quite literally will never happen. Right. In <laughs> it just won't. Yeah. So do you, how do you go about, is there a different, what's your casting process like for these projects? Is it different from uh, casting a show? Um, How are you enticing actors? I assume actors are just as excited about audio dramas as uh, writers are, but how do you go about casting these projects? Yeah, it's, it's, it's so much easier. Oh my God. You know, (laughs) partly because we don't need the actors for very long. Right. So the coldest case starred, Mm -hmm. um, we had an amazing cast. It starred Aaron Paul in Mm -hmm. the lead role, but we also had Natalie Emanuel and Alexis Bledel and Bo Bridges and Kristen Ritter. Um, just so many, just truly great actors, Mark Paul Gossler, Kevin Dunn, um, with the lead with Aaron Paul, take him for, for an example. Mm -hmm. We only needed him for nine days for him Mm. to record his entire lead role. And we ended up actually finishing early. Mm. But when you're asking an actor to, you know, for a TV show to, you know, go to production, wherever that is, whatever city it's in, um, basically leave their life, leave their family for however many months, Mm -hmm. you know, that's one ask. When you're asking them to record for nine days at home, Mm -hmm. no makeup, no costume, right? uh, especially during a pandemic it's just a million times easier mm-hmm. to get actors and they're, they seem to enjoy it. And mm-hmm. it's just as important as it is in TV in terms of the actors, you know, giving life to the characters. So mm-hmm. it's super important to get not just a movie star, but to get someone who can actually embody the character the way mm-hmm. you want them to. Um, but you can get really great people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for 10 days, yeah, you know, just an incredible cast, Glenn Powell. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote it with Glenn in mind. You know, mm-hmm. Glenn is a fantastic young actor. He's the star of a Netflix rom-com called Set It Up. 
which mm-hmm. is so much better than it needs to be. It's great. <laughs> He's the star of a, um, a Richard Linklater movie, his follow-up to Days of Confused called Everybody Wants Them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just so clear to me that Glenn is going to be a household name. Mm-hmm. Maybe after Top Gun comes out in a few mm-hmm. months, which is um, which he's starring in. But, um, you know, I wrote it with his voice in mind because that's such a specific, uh, really interesting voice to me. And so then I was just like, let's let's send it to him. And, and he came on board. Mm-hmm. And then he's buddies with Lamorne Morris, who's the star of New Girl and Woke and a bunch of shows. And Lamorne came on. And it really is kind of that easy. Whereas mm-hmm. in TV and film, yeah, you're, you're dealing with agents and managers and it's months and months and months and months. Right. That's fascinating. Um, so in terms of production, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to get kind of your two cents. Are you doing this as like a, uh, like a table read? So everyone is in the same room uh, recording together or are you doing this? Everyone's in their home, uh, records their parts separately and you chop them all together in editing. A combination. Um, Some of the time, some of the scenes we were able to get our actors in a recording booth together, Mm -hmm. um, which was always great, of course. But a lot of my shows, we just had the actor record either from home or from Mm -hmm. a recording studio. I would work with great production entities for 10 days. It was a company called Tree Fort Media, just Mm -hmm. really fantastic. When we had to record, you know, Aaron Paul, for instance, we would send him a kit you know, to Mm -hmm. his home in Idaho that included the microphone and the recorder and everything he needed. Mm -hmm. And then they would work with him on sound checks and make sure that it sounds just crystal clear. Mm -hmm. Um, Kristen Ritter, when we recorded her, you know, we were thinking about the same kind of stuff. How are we going to get her, you know, the right kit? Where will she record from? And she mentioned that her partner at the time uh, is the lead singer of War on Drugs. So she had a home recording studio in her basement. Right. So that turned out to be very easy. She yeah. just walked downstairs. Yeah. Um, you know, for Natalie Emanuel, she was recording like in her bathroom. She had mm-hmm. to put up blankets on the like porcelain, you know, floors in order yeah. to, you know, dull the 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 echo. Right. Um, but yeah, so, you know, this is obviously during the height of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did a lot of recording that way. And you cannot tell that the actors mm-hmm. were not together right. when you listen to the finished product. Yeah, and part that of that is because really we would... Yeah, we would hire actors to read opposite so um, that they, you know, weren't just reading into a vacuum, but they could get a sense of what the scene, what the rhythm Mm -hmm. was of the scene. And we would also get a lot of options. Mm -hmm. We would have them, you know, say the lines in a bunch of different ways so that we could make it work with the way that, you know, the actor that we ended up recording opposite them delivered their words. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, Cool. So not to jump around here a little bit, but... um when writing these, when writing an audio drama, are you, you mentioned it's all, obviously all dialogue. So are you thinking about different kinds of scenes that, cause obviously 10 days has some action in it because it's obviously about basketball and um, mm-hmm. you kind of, you shy away from the, the, from the actual action scenes. Usually you just get like a, you know, 10, 10 second, like clip of the beginning of an action scene. Then you cut to the end you yeah. know, of the games and stuff. So are you thinking about that a lot? So h- how much of your, um, of your process is like thinking, okay, how can we get dialogue only scenes here? And how much of like, how does that affect your writing process? Yeah. I mean, you, you have to think about an interesting soundscape for mm-hmm. every scene, which is not so dissimilar from thinking of an interesting visual for every mm-hmm. scene that you write in TV. Um, so it's very similar in that mm-hmm. way. You just, you never want to have two people alone in a room talking, right? Cause mm-hmm. there's nothing more boring than that. Right. Even if the dialogue is incredibly witty and crackling, I mean, even mm-hmm. Sorkin, who just r- likes writing two people alone in a room, mm-hmm. he's going to have them walk around, right? Yeah. So there's interesting things happening, a walk and talk. 
So you have to come up with with an interesting um, soundscape for okay. sure in audio drama. So yeah, I try to think about um, you know where to set scenes uh, that are different from the previous scene. Could it be by the water? You know, organically for the story. Could mm-hmm. it be? Um, you know, for 10 days, it was sometimes in a basketball gym, which mm-hmm. has a very different sound than a locker room mm-hmm. where a lot of scenes were, which has a very different sound from, a you know, inside a sports car where they mm-hmm. were uh, talking a lot. So, yeah, you just want to kind of play with that. Think about mm-hmm. what the soundscape can be. Like I said, Treefort Media did the um, did the audio soundscape. And so sometimes I would talk to them, you know, will this work? Will this be an interesting soundscape? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, after you've done a couple of these, you get the hang of it. Right. And are you ever worried about making the soundscape too elaborate like there were there were moments that i thought really worked well in 10 days but i would be worried to write them into a script because like there's one moment where the the mom they're kind of in uh like danny's hotel room or something mom walks Uh away to get ice for his leg and you can it it, i thought it works perfectly but i would be very worried to write that scene because i'd be like there's no way i can get a a sound artist to sound editor to like actually make this sound good um, so is there ever, are you ever worried about getting too elaborate with the soundscape or are you usually like, no, you just trust your sound people and, and they're going to, they're going to know what's it? Yeah. I mean, well, look, something like that, where it's just someone going to the refrigerator to get an mm-hmm. ice pack out. No, you, you trust that your, your sound uh, engineers, that they're going to be able to figure out a way to, you know, work with footsteps, work mm-hmm. with the opening of the refrigerator door. Um, you know, a lot of times they have that stuff like on file and a lot mm-hmm. of times the engineer will literally just take a microphone and open his refrigerator door five times and like huh. make it work. Gotcha. So you know that like something like that that exists in our normal everyday world mm-hmm. is going to be totally fine to, mm-hmm. to make work. Um, I just finished writing a um, superhero uh, okay. show on audio drama. And uh, we just we just finished production, actually. And uh, the production company that's doing it said it's the most difficult soundscape job that they've ever had because we ended up putting in tons of you know superhero tricks right. um, that the that the lead character has and so i didn't do as much thinking as i should have maybe as i was mm-hmm. writing it um i would have the main character you know he's able to um shapeshift and so mm-hmm. he's turning into a you know a mac truck and then he's turning into whatever and <laughs> i probably should have done a little bit more thinking about what exactly was going to be able to be accomplished and what would be just an incredible pain. Right. Um, but, you know, uh, I think it's going to sound amazing in the end. Nice. Uh, the engineer might just kill me. <laughs> Great. All right. So I wanted to give you a chance to kind of give us the elevator pitch for 10 days. Um, why should people go out and listen to it? They absolutely should. Yeah. I'm really excited for people to listen to it. Mm-hmm. So um, let's see. So it's actually, it could not be more relevant right now because of COVID, a lot of NBA players are out right mm. they're not they're not able to play and so this rule is really coming into effect and what this rule is it's been around since the 70s it's not mm-hmm. just for covid but when a team is down a player they can replace that player on the roster with anybody they want literally mm. they can choose you or me most often they choose someone from the g league mm-hmm. which is like the nba's minor league and that player gets 10 days mm. in the nba to show what they can do yeah, after that's the right 10 for days, drama. <laughs> oh my God, right? After 10 days, the team either has to uh, sign them for the rest of the season mm-hmm. or send them back down to the G League. Gotcha. So yeah, like you say, I mean, it's incredibly uh, yeah. right for drama. It's incredibly high stakes. It's very character focused. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an underdog. It's just, it's the making makings of an underdog sports story. Mm-hmm. So basically I tell the fictional story of one player who gets his 10 days mm-hmm. in the NBA. Um, he, it's played, you know, he's played by Gun Powell and, um, 
you know, in our case, it unfolds over 10 episodes, 10 half hour episodes, mm-hmm. each one covering one day of his contract. Mm-hmm. Um, my producer on it, my producing partner on it is Steve Nash. Mm-hmm. And Steve is, of course, an NBA legend. You know, he's got two, he won two consecutive NBA MVPs, played 18 seasons, saw lots and lots of 10-day players come and go in mm-hmm. his time. And so he was great about, you know, telling stories, telling anecdotes about what the pressures are for these guys, what their life is like in the locker room, mm-hmm. what they're going through at home, in the hotel. Um, Avery Johnson, who had a 10-day contract, talks about it as a um, 240-hour tryout, mm-hmm. just like every moment because gotcha. mm-hmm. you're not just being judged on how well you play obviously your shots got to drop mm-hmm. but you're also being judged on what kind of high fives you're giving yeah like, are you jumping off the bench to congratulate yeah. your teammates when they come in from timeouts like every moment matters so the stakes are so intense you're you're just constantly being monitored mm-hmm. you're uh you're, you're a little bit going crazy it's an emotional <laughs> roller coaster um and uh yeah that's the show and so yeah. it's on audible if you are an Audible subscriber, it's free, which okay. is which I love. Um, so it's sort of like HBO or Netflix. As long mm-hmm. as you pay your monthly fee, you can get this for free. Wonderful. Just type in 10 days into the search box. Cool. And uh, it's right there. Yeah. And we'll have a link down in the uh, down in the show notes great. as well. Um, awesome. All right. So that seems like a great place to start to wrap up. Um, before I ask my last question, uh, where can people find you online? You know, I'm not really into social media. Fair uh, enough. So, so nowhere. I, yeah. I've got a Twitter <laughs> account. I probably tweet you know, once every two years. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, just not my thing. Gotcha. Fair enough. All right. My final question. I call this your screenwriter survival tip. What's the most important thing you'd tell a young screenwriter to help them not only survive, but thrive in this industry? Yeah. I mean, that's a tough one. It's hard to come up with one thing. I think everything I've said before about, you know, enjoying the journey, not mm-hmm. just focusing on the results um, mm-hmm. is just could not be more important, but obviously that's, you know, very Buddhist. They don't need to hear me <laughs> tell them that. Um, in terms of actual practical advice, mm-hmm. I'll tell you the best piece of advice I got from a studio executive. Um, mm-hmm. I once went in, you know, early in my career and um, I pitched a show about the Secret Service. Mm-hmm. And I think it was to NBC. It was, it was to a broadcast network. Mm-hmm. And it was a very, very down the middle show. It was like NCIS, but mm-hmm. with the Secret Service. Case of the week, archetypal, generic characters mm-hmm. um and i thought it was brilliant i thought oh my god there's so many shows about ncis and the cia mm-hmm. and the fbi but there's never been one about the secret service mm-hmm. this is absolutely going to sell so it did not sell mm-hmm. and one of the network executives uh sort of stopped me in the hallway afterwards and he took me aside and he sort of said look let me let me tell you what the deal is um we don't need young writers like you to come in and pitch down the middle procedurals, right? Mm-hmm. We have our middle-aged showrunners who have been doing this for decades to bring us those kinds of shows. Right. What we want from you huh. is a new voice, is something completely different, something unlike what we have on the air. That's what we need from our new young writers. Huh. And I thought, oh, like, of course that's true. Like, right. of course I'm not going to sell this obvious show that has probably been pitched a million times before right. and that people who are much more successful, you know, than I was, uh, you know, are bringing them all the time and can certainly handle. Yeah. So that's what I really recommend that if you're an emerging writer, write something that is very personal to you or very specific to you and is unlike anything else that's currently on. That's amazing advice. It's so like 
um, obvious once you think about it. And again, right. I would never in a million years think about that. Um, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. That's amazing. All right, Aaron, thank you so much for being on. Um, Thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah. And everybody else, thank you for listening to this episode of Screenwriter Survival Guide. If we're delivering any insight or value to you, please drop us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow us so you get every new chapter as it airs. In the meantime, you can find this show online at ScreenwriterSurvivalGuide.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Sam Brooks Presents. Until next time, guys, don't just survive, thrive. Thrive.